If you were a 50-year-old white woman living in the United States, what is your life expectancy compared to a 50-year-old white woman in France, Germany, or England? And in virtually every other wealthy country in the world, the life expectancy is longer than it is in the United States. And that really tells us that we are doing something here that is not right. The Rational View is a weekly series hosted by me, Dr. Alan Scott, providing a rational, evidence-based perspective on important societal issues. Produced by Soapbox Media. The world needs evidence-based public policy now more than ever. Making the right decisions should not be partisan politics. Please help spread the rational view by going to patron.podbean.com slash the rational view. Together, we can make a better future. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Rational View. I'm your host, Dr. Al Scott. In this episode, I'll be taking a look at the ugly side of unrestricted capitalism and how lobbying has skewed the public debate and shifted the Overton window to the right. Some would argue that unrestricted capitalism has been a great boon, lifting society into an age of plenty. Others would argue that it has done this by maintaining an economic class hierarchy that enables the rich to enslave the poor. The basis of the question is, are workers entering into employment agreements between equals for a mutually beneficial exchange of labor for wages, or are people forced into degrading wage slavery under duress by withholding the the essentials of life like food, housing, and health care? My guest today will help us grapple with these issues. If you like what you're hearing, I would urge you to press like on your podcast app so we can get a little bit more visibility for the podcast. Also, feel free to join me on the Facebook group, The Rational View. Naomi Oreskes is professor of the history of science at Harvard University and the author of nearly 200 scholarly papers and popular articles and numerous books, including Merchants of Doubt and The Big Myth, both co-authored with Eric M. Conway. Her opinion pieces have appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Los Angeles Times, the London Times, and many others. Her TED Talk, Why We Should Trust Scientists, was viewed more than a million times. Wow. She's an active participant in the World Economic Forum in Davos. Professor Oreskes, welcome to The Rational View. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for coming on the show. Uh, I've read your book, The Big Myth. You've And I'm also very familiar with uh, Merchants of Doubt. This is something that's referenced quite a bit in in social media circles that I'm on. You've done quite a bit of work, I guess, over your career, publicizing how misinformation has infiltrated the public sphere. Merchants of Doubt tackled how companies sabotage the public reception of science and create polarization surrounding issues such as tobacco and climate change. Could you... I'm very interested. Could you give us your one-minute elevator pitch on why we should trust scientists in this case? Sure. Well, really, sorry, between the TED Talk and the book, I changed the title. It's not why we should trust scientists. It's why we should trust science. Because in giving that talk, I realized that actually my argument is not about trusting scientists. I think as individuals, scientists often go wrong and the merchants of doubt are, you know, you know, exhibit A for that. But as a process, as an enterprise, science has produced reliable knowledge about all kinds of questions that have helped us cure disease, send people to the moon. And so as a process, we see that science has an extremely solid track record 
And so that's the basic argument. And in the book, I go into more details about what that process is and how that process works to weed out error, uh, mm-hmm. sift through the mistakes and yield a reliable product. Your, your current book with Eric M. Conway, The Big Myth, follows in this theme and goes into great depth on how the public discourse has been influenced, especially in the U.S., by, I would say, right-leaning plutocrats in the business sphere over the past 150 or so years. Why did you want to write this book? Well, the book is a follow-up to Merchants of Doubt. In Merchants of Doubt, Eric Conway and I asked the question, why would intelligent, educated people reject hard-won scientific evidence? Because by the time we wrote that book, it was published in 2010, the scientific evidence of man-made climate change was overwhelming, climate change was already underway, and many of the predictions that scientists had made back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s were coming true. So the answer we found through five years of research was really political, that it wasn't about problems in the science or inadequate data or unreliable models. It was about the political ideology of market fundamentalism, the fear rooted in the Cold War and in Cold War anti-communism that government action in the marketplace, particularly environmental regulation or public health controls, would put us on a slippery slope to socialism, communism, and Soviet-style totalitarianism. And we left the book there because we'd already done a ton of work just to show the story and who these people were and how it operated. But it left us with another question, which was, well, where did market fundamentalism come from? And why would intelligent, educated people accept that argument when there was so much evidence from history and also from economics to disprove it? And so the new book is an attempt to answer that question. Um, So it's essentially a history of market fundamentalist thinking in the United States. And as you said, it's really a story about how a group of plutocrats, so now we shift the focus from science to business leaders, um, but also some academics work to promote this ideology in America, mostly for pretty cynical reasons. Indeed. Now, the book uh, is is long. It's dense with historical references from from old newspapers. It was an enjoyable read looking at all of the... seeing all the hijinks that used to go on, you know, sometimes you feel better and sometimes you say, oh, that's why that happened. <laughs> so how long did it take to put all of this together? This, this is huge. Yeah, about another five years. Probably uh, I was able to focus a little bit more because of the pandemic. I stopped traveling and stayed home and, and wrote, um, but it was about a five-year product project. So both of these books took I think Merchants of Doubt took about four years all in all. This one was closer to five. Seems to be about how long it takes me and Eric to put out a big book. No, it was it was very interesting. I was I was dismayed at, at the the huge number of examples where lobbying money from big business swayed the public discourse at critical times, and it seems to have been this hundred and fifty years of continuous and gradual push to shift the Overton window to the right, and in this in this in this sphere, the government is cast as inefficient and cumbersome, while unregulated capitalism and private industry is cast as inefficient and a bastion of freedom. It seemed to be the the, the two um, different uh, ways that it was framed. And I, I know there's certainly a grain of truth to these characterizations, but you know what does the evidence say? What 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 have you learned from from your investigations? Well, part of what motivated this book in the first place was the recognition of climate change as a market failure. So 
Eric Kahn, we are not anti-capitalist. Uh, we're not communists. We do think that markets are very efficient for doing certain kinds of things like delivering consumer goods, like the laptop that I'm talking to you on, the headphones I'm wearing, the you know water bottle that I'm drinking from. That's all well and good. But we also know that there are some pretty serious flaws in capitalism as currently operated. And one of the big ones, maybe the biggest one, is the problem of external costs. That is to say, the costs of doing business that are not reflected in the price. That cost could be workplace injury when workers are killed or hurt on the job. That cost could be environmental damage when, say, pollution is dumped in a river, makes the river, you know, you can't swim in it or fish can't live in it. Um, and it could be climate change. Uh, Nicholas Stern, who wrote the Stern Report for the Br British government on the economics of climate change now, something like 15 years ago, said a long time ago that climate change was the greatest and most wide-ranging market failure ever seen. Economists across the world, including conservative economists, I mean, Nick Stern's not a conservative, but he was the chief economist for the World Bank for many years. So that's not exactly a left-wing organization. Um, so people have recognized that climate change is a market failure, that it's a really, really big okay. problem, a problem that is costing people um, their health, their safety, their homes, uh, billions, if not trillions of dollars in damage every single year. And the market, the, the so-called free market system, seems to be completely incapable of addressing it. And so it was that recognition of the reality of market failure that made us pose the question, well, given this reality, given that there's so much obvious evidence of market failure, why do people keep telling us that we should just trust markets to yeah. solve our problems? And that was really part of the motivation for, for doing this work. Yeah, it's, it's basically the tragedy of the commons, right? It's, it's The commons is this shared resource that isn't priced into a market so markets are very good at setting prices when you're when when all of the costs are, are properly considered in in the thing but the commons you know we've seen it in the collapse of the fisheries in newfoundland we've seen you know things that aren't regulated fall apart why why do people think that the mark unregulated markets are a good thing they seem to be more damaging than good well, we think it because that's what we've been told for 120 years. And so really, this is the story of that myth. That's why the title is The Big Myth. We've been basically sold a story. Um, in Merchants of Doubt, we quote tobacco industry executives who basically say, doubt is our product. We're selling doubt. Uh, so in this book, the people are manufacturing a myth. And the myth is that we can just trust markets. We don't need governance. And so I think it's pretty obvious that that myth is untrue. Uh, but most of the book is not about proving that the myth is untrue. It's proving that it is a myth and who built that myth and how did they build it and how did they persuade us of its truth? And the short answer to that, if you don't want to read all 500 pages, is through a kind of saturation campaign by saying it enough times that people began to believe it was true and then the politicians began to implement it into public policy. Mm -hmm. your, your book shows a lot of examples where we're government invent intervention uh, seems to make for a better outcome to more equitable, sustainable economies, whereas unregulated markets have tended to fail. Can, can you go over some of the examples that, that you, you're, you put in the book? Sure. Well, first of all, we don't like to use the word intervention because we actually think that's part of the myth. The word intervention implies that markets are over here governments over there and that the government is somehow intervening or interfering in the, in the natural uh, function of the market. And so we argue that that's part of the myth because the reality is markets are human institutions. They're created by people. 
They predate capitalism. We know there were markets in the ancient world. There were markets in ancient Greece, ancient Rome, ancient Assyria. If you go to Pompeii, you can see the preserved markets beneath the uh, volcanic uh, deposits. And we also know that there have been rules and regulations for how markets operate since, uh, you know, as long as we've had records. So if you read the Old Testament, there are rules in the Old Testament about how markets should be regulated. In medieval Europe, there were rules about weights and measures. Uh, Throughout Western civilization, there have been rules about closing markets on Sunday in observation and respect for the Sabbath. So there have always been markets, or I should say for as long as there have been markets, there have been rules for how markets operate. So it's not an intervention. It's really the creation and the sustaining of markets. Um, so, so that's kind of part one. Uh, but given that, then we, we show a whole set of examples of market failure. And so the book begins with a very important debate in U.S. history that's been largely forgotten, but in the, Amer- in the United States in the early 20th century, there was something called the accident crisis. That's what it was called. There are books about it. There were articles written at the time. Um, huge numbers of workers, the equivalent of what would be like over a million people today, given the size of the population, um, enormous numbers of workers were seriously injured or killed on the job every year. Uh, the railroad industry and the anthracite mining industry were particularly unsafe. One statistic I calculated that I think really sums it up A young man born in the year 1899, when he turned 15, he would have been safer going to fight in World War I than going to work on the American railroads. It was that dangerous. Um, In the anthropocyte mining industry, 2% of all workers were killed every single year. So these were colossally dangerous industries. And if a person was injured or killed on the job, their family got nothing. Nothing. So that's a market failure because these workers are not actually being compensated for sacrifices that they have made on behalf of their corporations. And so a big fight erupted about what we now know today to be workmen's compensation. Today, we take workmen's compensation for granted, but at the time it was argued, businesses argued against it as an unfair government interference in the affairs of business, that a private, a businessman, and and it is businessman, I use that word advisedly, these were all men, Uh, that a businessman should have the right to decide for himself how to run his business without the government meddling in his affair. Again, meddling with scare quotes. It's a podcast, so people can't see me doing scare quotes in the air, but um, that was the argument. But in contrast that, people said, no, businesses have to take some steps to protect the safety and well-being of their workers. And moreover, when they do, it's actually better for the economy. And there were examples, there were commissions of people who traveled to Europe in Germany and the United Kingdom, there already were, were systems of workmen's compensation. And surprise, surprise, those factories were safer. Fewer people died. The factories actually ran more efficiently. So it was actually good for the economy. So the federal government in the United States did step in and required workmen's compensation. And mm-hmm. since then, we have much, many, many fewer injuries and far, far fewer deaths. I mean, people are still injured on the job in America today, but it's pretty rare for people to be killed on the job. It does happen, but not like what used to happen. Not the other big 2%. debate was, sorry, what? Not, not 2%. 2%. Yeah. Um, the other big debate was about child labor. So again, most of us might think it's pretty obvious that six-year-olds should not be working in a factory. But in the early 20th century, that was extremely common, uh, both in the United States and in many parts of Europe. Here in Massachusetts, where I live, it was documented that children as young as two years old 
worked in textile mills. And as you can imagine, the injury and death rate for these children was extremely high. So an argument developed in the early 20th century that this should be illegal, that business people should not have the freedom to exploit children, that that was simply wrong. And it was tied to arguments for compulsory public education, that children should be in schools, not factories. And again, the business community fought this as an unfair, inappropriate government intervention in their private, essentially in private property rights. Mm -hmm. But they lost those arguments. People said, no, we shouldn't have uh, widespread child labor and children should be in school and workers should be compensated if they're killed on the job. And so gradually the U.S. began to remedy some of these market failures with appropriate statutes and regulations. Mm -hmm. And this was essentially the state of affairs for the next 50 or so years in the United States. The mainstream public opinion did support government action in the marketplace to protect workers, to protect the environment, to protect consumers against dangerous and faulty products. But all the while, the business community was fighting back. And they were fighting back in a very smart way by building an alternative narrative by building this narrative about how government, well, they called it intervention, threatened freedom. And at first, they don't succeed. They try a lot of things. They spend hundreds of millions of dollars, the equivalent of probably, well, tens of million at that time, the equivalent of hundreds of millions or more today wow. uh, on propaganda campaigns. But it, it mostly doesn't work through most of the 20th century until it does start to work. And I think this also proves the importance of persistence. They don't give up. They keep trying and they keep trying. And then they cultivate Ronald Reagan. And so the third third of the book is about how Reagan brings these ideas, which were decidedly not mainstream in the United States in the mid 20th century, ideas that had essentially been rejected by the American people, how he brings them into mainstream politics, resurrects them and makes them not just acceptable, but sort of conventional wisdom. Yeah, the folksy approach of trickle down economics. Um, exactly. You, the, the term neoliberalism is used a lot. Is is, is Reagan's are Reagan's policies the the genesis of neoliberalism? Or maybe we could define that for the listeners. What 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 that really is? Sure, neoliberalism is a tricky term because it's it's used very broadly. It's used kind of loosely, um, and sometimes it's used in ways that you know are so capacious as to be not so helpful. But mm-hmm. neoliberalism really begins in Europe uh, in the mid 20th century. It's developed by a group of people initially related to a group called the Austrian School of Economics. Mm -hmm. And the key arguments are arguments against government action in the marketplace. So the neoliberals want to resurrect classical European liberalism to focus on the rights of individuals, to focus on property rights, and to say that government should, the government action in the marketplace should be absolutely minimal. Uh, And often that means minimal or no regulation of private markets or private contracts or affairs, um, low rates of taxation, uh, yeah, the sort of promoting of pro-market, more market-forward programs, and and a high valorization of property rights. And this then becomes an argument against environmental protection, because environmental protection is often used as seen as um, denying people property rights, because I can't just do whatever I want. I have to take into account environmental issues. So this is developed by a group of people in Europe, and it's led particularly uh, by a group associated with a group called the Mont Pelerin Society that met in Mont Pelerin, Switzerland after World War II. And it was a conscious effort to develop a set of principles 
it's related to laissez-faire economics. It's not exactly the same, but it's similar. Um, so part of the story is how these ideas come to America because they're, sent, they're developed initially in Europe, not by Ronald Reagan. This is fully, um, well, Reagan is elected in 1980. So this is 40 years before Ronald Reagan becomes president of the United States. And, and, and they don't have a lot of uptake, especially because after the disaster of the Great Depression, the idea that you could just leave it to the market to sort everything out is not really a credible argument to be making in the 1940s. And it doesn't really succeed. Keynesian economics is adopted by most European countries and by the United States. But a group of business leaders, as you call them, plutocrats in the United States, see these arguments and they say, oh, we like that. That's consistent with what we think. We like the idea that the government should not be in, acting in the marketplace, um, that there should be no minimum wage law, that there should be little uh, or no environmental protection. Although, interestingly, I should say, the Americans go way farther than the original neoliberals do. So one of the arguments we make in the book is Friedrich von Hayek, who's one of the key figures in the Mont Pelerin Society. He actually says, oh, no, you do need some laws, for example, laws to prevent uh, pollution and deforestation. He specifically uses those examples. Mm -hmm. So he recognizes that pollution is an example of a market failure. But that gets brushed aside by the American plutocrats who say, this is fantastic. And so they recruit von Hayek and also his mentor, Ludwig von Mises, both Austrian economists, to come to the United States to promote these ideas in America. They get them hired in universities. And this is, the book is filled with ironies that really point out the hypocrisy of these people, the cynicism of them, because while they're, champion comp they're champions of competition, right? They say competition should be the basic principle under which everything operates. They get these guys hired at jobs with no open search, no advertisement, no competition. So they believe in competition for everyone else, but not for themselves. So they get them hired and then they begin to promote their work. And one of the things they do is to promote a boulderized, simplified version of von Hayek's classic text, The Road to Serfdom. Hmm. So in The Road to Serfdom, Hayek lays out this argument. And Hayek is a very smart guy. I mean, he's quite brilliant. The book is very well written. It's very interesting to read. And it's not a crazy argument. I mean, you can see his point about it's really about how do you balance individual rights against the collective goods? And I don't agree with the conclusion he comes to, but you know, it's a legitimate question, right? But what these American plutocrats do is to reduce the argument literally to a cartoon. So first they produce a reader's digest version that takes out all of von Hayek's caveats, takes out his discussion of how you do need laws to prevent pollution, or you do need a social security system because he thought you did. Um, and makes it just a celebration of free markets and individual rights. And then they make a cartoon version, literally cartoons, 18 cartoons that basically say any government action in the marketplace, the next thing you know, we're living in a totalitarian dictatorship. And the final cartoon is a dissident being shot by the firing squad. Wow, and they memes. promote this. Yeah. And they promote this in American <laughs> culture. Um, this cartoon version is distributed uh, in Look magazine, which had a circulation at the time of 2 million people. So they get this message out very, very broadly through magazines, through newspapers, um, and through the, well, especially through Reader's Digest magazine, which had a very large mass circulation at that time. Hmm. That, that's, that's crazy. But, but I mean, as you say, it wasn't adopted after the depression because of the obvious failure of the market there, but eventually it does get adopted and becomes mainstream. And it's, it's frightening 
you make a very convincing case that the prevailing economic theory is selected more on rhetoric, rhetoric and marketing rather than scientifically or mathematically tested hypotheses. I mean, I mean, not being a, a, an economist, I was shocked that this is, you know, how did this become mainstream? Are, are the economic theories not tested? Are they, are they just castles in the sand? What's, what's, what's fell apart? Or did, did politics trump the, the economists who are all yelling, this is wrong? Well, I think it's a complicated story. We're not historians of economics, and this is not an economic history. It's really a history of propaganda. But this, there's, this is obviously an important question in the story. And so we have uh, two whole chapters that are devoted to looking at these questions. And what I would say, so one, one of the ways I often get asked this question often is poses, so do I think economics is a science? And so my answer is it can be. There are definitely economists who behave scientifically, who collect data, who test their theories, but the Chicago School, by and large, not, and particularly not Milton Friedman, the most famous and prominent and influential member of the Chicago School. So if you read his most famous book, Capitalism and Freedom, there is almost no evidence in that book. There's no data. There's no discussion of testing theories. And sometimes when he makes claims to support his theory, he draws on history and he says things about history that are demonstrably false, that any historian of science or any historian of the United States could tell you in five seconds is simply untrue. And in the book, we talk about some examples of that. So there's a kind of reckless disregard for facts. Um, yet this book becomes super influential. Uh, he becomes a columnist for Newsweek magazine, ultimately becomes an advisor both to Ronald Reagan, Margaret Thatcher, and also to the Chilean dictator, Augusto Pinochet. Um, and he, wants, he wins the Nobel Prize Memorial Prize in Economics and wins the American National Medal of Science, oh my God, as well as the Medal of Freedom. So this is part of our argument about how propagandistic this is. Why do these ideas get so much traction when they're based on so little evidence? And part of the answer has to do with the way, again, plutocrats, a group of the same people who brought von Hayek and von Mises to America, fund a big part of the Chicago School of Economics, not the whole department, but a significant part of it, a program called the Free Market Project. Okay. Milton Freeman is part of that project, and so also is George Stigler. And he's an important part of our story because he produces what I consider to be a bolderized version of Adam Smith. So we've all heard of Adam Smith. We all know he's, you know, the founder, the father of modern capitalism. So you might think, if you had never read The Wealth of Nations, that Adam Smith was a free market fundamentalist, mm -hmm. but he's not. If you actually read Wealth of Nations, which I did for this book, and it's not easy, it's a thousand pages of turgid 18th century prose, <laughs> but he makes the point that actually government involvement is essential in a number of key areas. And one of the key areas is banking regulation. And, you know, we were finishing this thought? book. <laughs> I know the whole Silicon Valley bank thing was blowing up right when this book came out. And we thought, well, there is a God. He sent us the Silicon Valley Bank. <laughs> um, you know, if anything made the case for us, pointing out that Adam Smith predicted this in 1776, that if you don't regulate banks, the reckless behavior, the self-interest of bankers threatens to wreck the whole economy. I mean, and so he's, you have to have banking regulation and you also have to have taxation and a whole other, you, you need minimum wage laws so that workers don't starve. And he even supports unions because he says the power of the factory owners will always be greater than the power of the workers. And so workers need to organize themselves in order to try to balance level that playing field. But all of those discussions 
are removed from George Stigler's edited version of The Wealth of Nation. Yeah. You, I mean, you would think, you know, the, the 2008 subprime mortgage collapse fiasco, you know, is a stark reminder that unregulated banking doesn't work. It, it, capitalism fails when you don't regulate it. Um, exactly. I, I'm surprised nobody noticed. Well, a few people did. And one of the people we talk about in the book is Richard Posner. And, and he's a really important figure for us because he's a really, really conservative uh, judge. And he came out of the Chicago School, the Chicago School of Law of Economics. And most of his career, he spent arguing against regulation, arguing for an absolutely minimalist interpretation of the government's role uh, in, the, you know, in the law. But he changed his mind after 2008. And he's one of the few people who, who does. So we use him to make exactly the point that you just said, that if you actually look at the evidence and you see what happened in 2008, as well as in 1929 and in many of the bank panics of the 19th century, you come to understand that banking regulation is absolutely essential. Securities regulation is mm -hmm. absolutely essential. And that's why so many reforms were put in place in the early 20th century, you know, to create in the United States, the Security and Exchange Commission, for example, or the FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, to prevent these kinds of abuses. But part of what has happened in the United States and elsewhere since 1980-ish has been the systematic weakening of regulation on the grounds that somehow, mm, somehow we don't need those regulations anymore. But 2008 Freedom. proved that we did. So to Richard Posner's credit, he says this, but it raises this very interesting question of why is he so unusual of being one of the few people in the Chicago school who had, who, who learned a lesson from 2008. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that, that is stark. So, I mean, the neoliberals have been continually pushing the idea that government is inept and um, screws things up. Has this become a self-fulfilling prophecy in a way? It, it seems like, you know, you know, media reporting on elections has become a popularity contest rather than an investigation of policy and, and capability. Uh, I feel like we're 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 marching towards idiocracy. Uh, is this been a is this due to the strategy or is this just a, a, a nasty coincidence? Uh, no, I don't think it's a coincidence. You know, historians don't really believe in coincidences. Um, I mean, there are some, but and I love that idiocracy. I haven't heard that before. That's so great. Um, it, it's a movie. You well, should watch it. Oh, okay. Well, well, absolutely. I mean, I think that it is, it does become a self-fulfilling prophecy because if you elect people who don't believe in government and who starve government of the necessary revenues for it to operate efficiently, then of course it will be inefficient. And we've, we saw this, we've seen this in the United States repeatedly in the last 40 years, but especially, you know, just in the last couple of weeks with the Republicans, once again, refusing to fund the government. I mean, that's the starkest proof of what they're up to. They want government to fail. They want to weaken the federal government because they know the rights of workers, the rights of consumers, protection of the environment, uh, you know, so many issues where the market fails. In the United States, the federal government has been the main place where those remedies have occurred. They could, in theory, happen on the state level, and sometimes they do. But historically, in the United States, it's more been on the federal level. And so the cynical operations of the current Republican Party is to deliberately undermine the function of governments that they can say, see, we're right, government doesn't work. And it is self-fulfilling and, and it works in part because we do have lots of examples of government ineptitude and that seems to prove their point. And the clearest example is their refusal to fund 
the IRS, the Internal Revenue Service, which collects taxes, because everyone hates the IRS because no one wants to pay taxes. But we would hate it less if when we picked up the phone to ask a question, a polite and unstressed worker answered, which, by the way, they do in Canada. And I I just want to say I had an incredibly great experience with the Canadian government when it turned out the Canadian government owed me money because I had overpaid taxes on some work I had done in Canada. And the people there, first of all, I was amazed that someone would call me to tell me. <laughs> yes, they, I'm they amazed too, actually. That doesn't usually happen. And then they walked me through these forms and they told me what forms I had to fill out. And I got like $3,000 back from the Canadian government. So that's how it should work, right? It's mm-hmm. an honest system. It's transparent. And if you need help, you get help. That doesn't happen in the United States because the IRS is underfunded. So, of course, we all hate it. But it turned out there was a study that showed that if it was better funded, they could also do their job better and collect taxes that were owed. And therefore, higher funding for the IRS would actually cost the taxpayer nothing because it would be paid for in collected revenues. Republicans wouldn't vote for it. Yeah, the, the fact that Adam Smith, the he's like he was the inventor of the invisible hand, right? The invisible hand of the market, wasn't he the one that? The yeah, he's that? credited with first developing that phrase. Yeah, yes. he, he's commonly quoted amongst the the neoliberals, but he supported government regulations. If, yes, he you know, did. You know, if you have the fortitude to read the thousand page. Well, you don't have to because you can read our book. <laughs> Just read yeah. the twenty or thirty pages in our book because we discussed than, this. Only a little more it's than a, half. <laughs> yeah, it's a very important. Well, you don't have to read all our book. You can just read the section on Adam Smith. My husband keeps telling me to say in interviews, you really don't have to read the whole book. You can pick and choose individual chapters. So you can definitely read the chapter about the Chicago School and the misrepresentation of Adam Smith. You don't have to read the whole book. Hmm. Hmm. I, I think. Your, your book makes a good case that, you know, if we want to maintain uh, a liberal democracy and u- uphold our way of life and our standards of living, we really need to do the work to become educated and, you know, fight for egalitarian regulations in the marketplace of ideas. And, and the laziness of the neoliberal laissez-faire approach is really not hitting us in the right direction. And I, I think that, you know, it feels like standards of education are eroding and, you know, public schools aren't being funded. And, you know, we need to have this, the fortitude to stand up and, 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 you know, the point that they make that, you know, government regulations are, you know, socialist control or communist control has, has also failed, right? Central control of, of markets has not worked in, in so in the Soviet union, um, so there's a, a middle ground, I think, between the, the full lazy fare and the central control that needs to be walked. And it's, it's, it takes, I think, agreement that from both sides of this, of these polarized issues that we need to govern our society and have these institutions. And I think at this point, we're, we're at the point where some of us have decided that burn it all down. <laughs> right. Well, that's exactly right. And this is, in a sense, a central part of the argument of the book. What the neoliberals tried to do is to create this, what we consider to be a false dichotomy, that there's only two choices. Either you have a centrally planned economy, a dictatorial economy like the Soviet Union, or you have, let's say, fair economics, you know, completely unregulated or virtually unregulated capitalism, and that there's no alternative because 
they argue, that the minute you begin to compromise, you're on this slippery slope to totalitarianism. Well, that's just false. It's been proven false by the social democracies of Europe and to some extent by Canada. Um, there are lots of countries in the world that have markets that are far more regulated than the United States, that have far greater protections for workers, um, and they are not communist dictatorships. And we've had this since the end of World War II. So, you know, the argument that they're going to become dictatorships doesn't really hold up when we've had 50 years of proof of concept. So our argument is there is a middle ground. And to say there's no middle ground is at best, it's a failure of imagination. And at worst, it's a horrible lie because it shuts down the conversation we need to have of what that middle ground looks like. And it won't necessarily be exactly the same. We say this at the end of the book, what people in France are comfortable with might be different than what people in Denmark are comfortable with, which might be different than what people in the United States are comfortable with. But we know that we can protect workers, we can protect the environment and still have a prosperous market-based economy. And that's really what we call for in the book. We're not calling for revolution. We're not calling for centralized planning. Um, I don't want to live in China and neither does Eric Conway, but I want to live in a country where people have healthcare Mm -hmm. and where the life expectancy continues to increase not decrease. And to me, that's the greatest indictment, the greatest proof that what we've done in the United States has on some level gone badly wrong. Because after a century of improved life expectancy, in recent years, life expectancy in the United States has gone down. And it's not just among poor people, which even if it were, that would be extremely bad. But even among wealthy people, there was a very interesting piece I read, I think it was in the New York Times a week or two ago, comparing life expectancy in the United States to other countries and doing a, a sort of comparable comparison. So if you were a 50-year-old white woman living in the United States, what is your life expectancy compared to a 50-year-old white woman in France, Germany, or England? And in virtually every other wealthy country in the world, the life expectancy is longer than it is in the United States. And that really tells us that we are doing something here that is not right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The... Um the counter examples of, of say the Nordic social democracies would seem to be a stark rebuttal to the, the neoliberal laissez faire thing. How, how are they, how is this handled in the U S in the media? What are they demonized in some way? Are they, you know, why is this perception not widely accepted as a a demonstration of of success? You look at the the polls that people take on happiness and they're always happier in in Norway and Finland and Sweden than they are in in, in the US. Why is this not news? Well, that's a really great question. I'm not entirely sure I can answer it. I think you'd have to talk more to like journalists to ask why they don't cover the story more. I mean, some do, but many don't. I mean, I think some of it has to do with the, the way red baiting persists in the United States. So that if you mm. try to have a conversation about, let's say, Norway, you immediately get accused of being a socialist. And again, this is part of the story. The way the propagandists of the free market um, tried to make any discussion of alternatives, any discussion of social democracy, quickly elided into socialism and to blur that distinction so that that social democracy is treated as the same as socialism, even though we know it's actually quite different. So I think that's part of it. The strategy shuts down that conversation. And I think the other part of it has to do with American exceptionalism. So, you know, there's this long thread in American culture that America is different, that America is exceptional, uh, that we're not like other countries. And therefore, the experiences of other countries are not relevant to the U.S. situation. 
And I think that a lot of Americans have bought into that mythology. So if you try to talk to Americans about how it's different in, in Finland or, or Norway or even France or Germany, um, they just shut down. You know, they, they don't they don't see it as um, relevant. And this really came up for me back when I was still doing a lot of lecturing on climate change. I would sometimes point out some, you know, something that France was doing or Germany. And a, a lot of times my audiences would kind of glaze over like it wasn't relevant for them. But if I could use an example from Canada, for example, the carbon tax that was passed in Alberta some years ago, that had a lot more resonance. And I think that was because Americans were more willing to think of Canadians as being like us. And therefore examples from Canada could be convincing in a way that an example from France might not be. Hmm. Hmm. So you've put a, a lot of work into these books. Um, what do you hope that the book accomplishes? What would you like to see change as a result of this book? Well, mainly I think of books as conversation starters. So that's why I'm happy to be with you today, here today and talking you know, with your listeners. I mean, the point is to have a conversation, to open up a space, to talk about what that middle ground could look like to talk about what kinds of reforms we could put in place to better address market failures, to reform capitalism, to be more protective of the needs of people and address the colossal market failure that is climate change. Because I think until we have that conversation, we can't get to the solution because we have to first talk about it. And so that's really my goal. Um, and ultimately, of course, my goal is to fix the climate crisis. Yeah, very good. Yeah, one of the one of the interesting observations I made is... Uh, I probably wasn't the originator of it, but the the way capitalism was going in the early 20th century, it was effectively saved by unions because the, the inequality was getting to the point where there would have been a revolution if the unions hadn't stepped up and protected the workers. So it, it's interesting that capitalism, I don't think, can exist without strong unions. Um, well, I think that's right. I mean, in a way, it's like capitalism needs to be saved from itself. And a similar argument about the social democracy. So we know that... Germany was one of the first countries to introduce workmen's compensation, social security, other benefits for workers. And it was for exactly this reason. Bismarck was worried that the workers were being radicalized. Remember, you know, Marx and Engels are German. A lot of their analysis is about German industrial society. Um, and the German workers are being radicalized. Many of them are becoming interested in communism because capitalism is so brutal and so horrible and so crushing, really, to the aspirations of ordinary people. And Bismarck recognizes that, and he realizes that if he can make certain kinds of reforms to make capitalism more humane, less crushing of people's aspirations, this would weaken their support for radical movements. And it does. And FDR, in a way, does the same thing in the United States, what, some 60 or 60, 70 years later. Um, he recognizes that the Great Depression is a huge indictment of capitalism, Capitalism is failing on a massive scale. 25% of the American workforce is out of work. Mm. So people are having conversations about communism. I mean, in the 1930s, the Communist Party in the United States was growing and many unions were sympathetic to communism because capitalism seemed to be failing so catastrophically. So FDR, like Bismarck before him, realizes that if he supports unions, if he empowers unions to work for fairer wages, if he creates a system of social security to protect people from impoverishment, particularly in old age, uh, we already had workmen's compensation by that time, but ch strengthening child labor laws, that this would actually strengthen capitalism and basically help it to resist the more radical forms of 
change that people were asking for. So many historians have always said that FDR saved capitalism from itself. Mm-hmm. I think we're kind of in that same moment now. I mean, one of the things I've really noticed in my own teaching, 10 years ago, none of my students were telling me that they were against capitalism. Now, a lot of my students are saying that. And polls show that a lot of young people mm-hmm. think that capitalism is, you know, maybe really needs to go. So if we don't do something to address these big problems, then we really do run the risk of certain kinds of rejection of democratic norms and not that capitalism, I don't, let me clarify that. I don't buy the Milton Friedman argument that capitalism and democracy necessarily go together. I think that history doesn't support that. But the worry is that if people become radically alienated from civic society, that often that just doesn't go well, right? And that if we can make evolutionary reforms that's more likely to happen without huge disruption, without violence, without pain and suffering. And so as a historian, that's kind of my argument. It's not that I'm not, I mean, if there are people out there who think we need radical reform, I'm not opposing radical reform, but I just think the history shows that if we can do it in an evolutionary way rather than a revolutionary way, we're more likely to actually get the result we want. Indeed. I think that's very important in in, in your uh talking about uh, climate change and, and the energy transition, that's also very important here on the, the rational view. And we talk a lot about that. Uh, so I uh, applaud your goals with this book. And I think uh, it's a very uh, interesting read. It was, it was, it was fun to learn about all of these things. It was frustrating. It, you know, it wasn't a happy read. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, my favorite review of Merchants of Doubt was one reviewer who said, this is a sobering book that had me reaching for a stiff drink. <laughs> I think you could probably say the same as about this one as well. So yeah, it's not a happy read, but I'm hoping that it's, like you said, it's interesting, it's informative, and maybe it empowers people to think about, you know, what are the alternatives available to us and how do we reopen this conversation that has effectively been shut down for so many decades? Well, I appreciate you coming on our show and talking to us about this. Uh, it's been a, a learning experience, a, a great read. Uh, thank you so much for coming on, for spending your time. Uh, I could send you a Rational View t-shirt if you'd like. Uh, Sure. (laughs) I love that. Thank you so much. Terrific. All right. Very nice spending time with you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. If you'd like to follow up with more in-depth discussions, please come find us on Facebook at The Rational View and join our discussion group. If you like what you're hearing, please consider visiting my Patreon page, at patron.podbean.com slash the rational view. Thanks for listening.